Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, high school teachers could be on strike on Wednesday. We hear both sides of the story. A former well-respected B.C. politician was detained in China when he went back with his wife for their 30th anniversary. We're just hearing about it now. And we talk to Deputy House Leader for the Conservatives, John Nader, and ask him about the future of his party. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, in case you haven't known, in case you don't know, uh, yesterday the uh, teachers union announced that they, the secondary school teachers uh, would be holding a one-day strike. This is uh, not set in stone yet, but I guess, uh, I guess out there to put uh, pressure on the negotiations. Uh, Wednesday, uh, if no if no settlement by then, they will take a one-day strike. Uh, coming up a little later on, we're going to talk to Harvey Bischoff, the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Now let's bring in Sam Oosteroff, parliamentary assistant to the Minister of Education, MPP for Niagara West, and on the line now. Sam, thanks for the call. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, we were watching uh, the Minister of Education on uh, TV yesterday. Uh, where is the, where's the differences here? Where's the st- what, what are the stumbling blocks? Uh, why are we on the verge of a strike here? Well, listen, you know, we've really tried to show that we are uh, committed to getting a deal that keeps kids in the front of class. And we've made major uh, moves at the bargaining table, including moving from a proposed 28 class size uh, to 25 students in a class. We've shown a uh, willingness to, to make moves on other issues, such as moving from four online credits, uh, mandatory online e-learning credits, to two mandatory online e-learning credits. And we've shown that we're willing to work in good faith and be constructive. But unfortunately, it just hasn't been reciprocated. We haven't seen reciprocal action at the negotiating table to get to the place where uh, we need to be. And so we're very disappointed to see things escalate uh, this quickly and to see things come to this this place. And we're calling on uh, the union leadership and uh, to, to make sure that we stay at the table 24-7 to get a deal. We feel that this is turning uh, the backs of, uh, they were turning the backs on students and students deserve better because strikes end up hurting kids, right? Uh, it's fair to say that parents deserve predictability. We saw what happened earlier this year with the QP deal where it was nine o'clock on a, on a Sunday night and parents were struggling and scrambling to find childcare for their students in the morning, f- trying to find a place where their kids were going to be able to stay while they went to work. Uh, we don't we don't feel that's fair to parents. We don't feel it's fair to kids, which is where we're trying to uh, support them. So we've made moves. Uh, unfortunately, it hasn't seemed to get to the place where we need to be, but we are committed to getting a deal uh, that helps kids. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the head of the Secondary School Teachers Federation said that, the, that uh, you brought absolutely nothing, was their quote, to, to the table. Uh, wh- where do negotiations go from here? It's obviously where it's obvious where a stalemate. Well, listen, I, I, I would contest that. We've shown, as the minister has stated multiple times, uh, that we're willing to have mediation to get to the place where we need to be that, that protects kids. Uh, but I think it's important that we recognize this is how we were able to get to a deal uh, with QP earlier in the year, that we were able to get to a place that kept kids in class, that provided parents predictability so they weren't scrambling for childcare. We, we've called on mediation 
Uh, we haven't had that offer taken up, and we want to make sure that we're staying at the table to get that deal. And so we're saying, look, whether it's moving from 28 uh, to 25 in classroom sizes or reducing online learning courses from four to two, uh, we've made moves at the bargaining table, but the unions have decided to escalate, and it's it's wrong. Uh, our students deserve better. And so the ministers called on OSSTF to remain at the bargaining table with third-party independent mediation up until the deadline to do everything we possibly can. And I know that all parties are um, that are truly committed to the success of our children are going to be considering every tool of it, tool available, and mediation is one of those tools that we feel uh, should be used as it was used with the QP deal earlier this year. Why are we not at mediation now? Well, that's a, that's a question uh, perhaps you want to ask the unions. I, I, I'm not going to uh, comment on their motive for it, but uh, we, we feel it's regrettable that we're not because it's, it's a step in the right direction that we saw has worked. We've seen it work uh, with the QP deal earlier this year, uh, and we've shown that it's possible to get those deals, and those are the deals we, we feel will support students and support parents as well as teachers and provide uh, meaningful uh, engagement and also ensure that we're able to get to a place where uh, children are back in class where they belong. Uh, something that the minister said yesterday, uh, and, and I think that's starting to resonate, certainly with people of my generation. I'm 57 years old. I have two kids, uh, high school and elementary school, uh, and are going through this again, or threats of. I think this is the third time for them. I remember being a student at 16, 17, and going through the same thing. What's different this time? Because it seems it doesn't matter what the political party is, we end up here. Well, it's, it, you're absolutely right, and this is something we've talked about. You know, there's not a lot of things that Bob Ray, Mike Harris, Doug Ford, and Premier Dalton McGinty have in common, uh, but all of them have had uh, labor action happen, uh, and, and we've seen uh, this type of escalation in the past. And it's unfortunate. You know, just this year alone, our government has increased education funding by $1.2 billion dollars. To $30 billion, it's, it's the most Ontario's ever seen. It includes uh, a lot of supports for the for the students in class, a doubling of mental health funding, historic increase to special education funding, $200 million for science, technology, engineering, and math to ensure students have the skills they need to succeed in, you know, a changing economy. Uh, but but still, we see this escalation, and it's, it's deeply regrettable. It's something that we feel is avoidable. Uh, and as we've shown with the QP deal, does not need to happen. We don't need to escalate to this point where we're able to get uh, a deal if, if we can make sure that we're negotiating up till the very last minute and, and reaching a deal that keeps students in class. Sam, there's teachers uh, right behind me at Westell uh, High School that are demonstrating right now, and the signs all say cuts, 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 cuts. How, how do you respond to that? Well, let's look at the numbers. We had a fall economic statement that came out uh, two weeks ago, and in that fall economic statement, the numbers were very clear that this year alone we've increased uh, spending in education by $1.2 billion over last year. So we've gone from almost $29 billion to $30 billion. That's a significant amount of increases, but those increases are targeted uh, to make sure that they're supporting kids in class. That, that's why, like I said, you know, we've invested $200 million for a new four-year math strategy. We've included more than $90 million in programs to help students plan uh, for the future, like the specialist high skills major, dual credit, the school college work initiative, uh, 
$2 billion for child care, creating up to 30,000 new child care spaces. Uh, but unfortunately, we still see a desire to escalate. And, and that's unfortunate because if you look at the numbers in the budget um, that have been borne out now in the fall economic statement, we're increasing spending overall in education by significant portion. But we're doing it in a way that doesn't just increase salaries uh, dramatically. It, it, it supports uh, the, the types of on or the types of supports in the classroom that really help students. Sam Musaroff has been with us, parliamentary assistant to the Minister of Education and MPP for Niagara West. Sam, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. Anytime. Joining us now to talk more about all of this, Harvey Bischoff is with us, president of the OSSTF and is on the line now. Harvey, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Harvey, uh, the first thing I want to say, and this is a parent, so I, I think you're thinking, oh, no, here we go again. But, um, you know, I'm a parent, and I'm, I'm 57 years old. I got two kids in the system. Uh, I think this is our third time with, with this sort of thing. And, you, you know, I remember back to when I was a teenager in high school and being at the Canadian National Exhibition on Labor Day Monday when they would keep it open later back then and phoning my mother for a payphone because this was before all of that technology and asking her to go to the TV set and look at the Cable 10 uh, local news scrolling thing and to see if we had to go to school on Tuesday because of the threat of a teacher strike. That's when I was a teenager. Uh, since then, we've gone through this with an NDP government. We've gone through it with a progressive conservative government. We've gone through it with a liberal, liberal government. And it's basically the same thing every three years or so. Uh, how, what is different this time? Because as a parent and as a student, it just seems we're going around in circles and it doesn't matter what the government of the day is. There's these conflicts. So I, I understand that perspective and I'm a you know, 56-year-old parent myself, so we're, we're in the same cohort. Um, and I would say this. Um, every time a government tries to raid the education funding line and, and spend that money on other priorities. Right now we have a government looking to, you know, they've already given tax cuts to, uh, to their wealthy friends. They're, they're looking to spend $231 million on canceling green energy projects. Um, you know, they, they canceled cap and trade to the tune of $3 billion. Um, so they're making choices and those choices are having a negative impact on the publicly funded education system. Every time, uh, a government tries to do that, we stand up to defend quality education. So, yeah, we've been nonpartisan in that defense of the system. It hasn't mattered uh, which stripe of government uh, has come after it. Um, we've defended it. But as an educator, I'm not embarrassed about that. I'm frankly proud of it. And it's part of how we built an education system that um, stands amongst the best in the entire world. So every government is trying to raid the education system? Well, let's take a look at this government. What they announced in March was their intention to slash one out of four high school teachers over the next uh, over the next four years. They slashed uh, thousands of support staff positions. They want to force kids into mandatory e-learning classes with with class caps of 35. Um, when there's no evidence that we have the infrastructure required around the province, when we know some kids simply can't afford the hardware they're re that they need, and we know that when the kids don't succeed at the same rates as they do in face-to-face -face classrooms. So that's what get this government has done. And then they want, to, they want to claim that they're in some sort of righteous position with regard to uh, their defense of education. It, it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. 
Uh, in regard to the cutting, I mean, uh, from what I understand, enrollment in Ontario schools has been pretty much stagnant or declining for a period of time. And, you know, I certainly know anecdotally of there's lots of teachers out there who are in their late 20s and 30s who have been waiting in line to get jobs that just simply aren't there because of the demand. So is that fair? I I mean, at the end of the day, I keep coming back to your statement that every government is trying to raid education. I don't think every government's trying to do that, are they? I think every government's faced with the reality of the day, but to say that every government is trying to raid education, whether you're NDP, progressive conservative or liberal, I, I'm not sure what your connection is to enrollment, uh, but I will say enrollment... Well, you're, well you're, you were saying that they were cutting teachers. What they're, what they're doing is they're stopping the hiring of additional teachers, from what well, I understand. On, the, and, on and, the contrary, they're trying to remove one out of every four teaching positions um, in the province. And teaching positions have always floated with enrollment. Um, that it, There are formulas that tie teaching positions to enrollment, and that strikes me as appropriate. Although there was some change in that ratio over the last 15 years, and what did that change lead to? In the last 15 years, we've had a 20% increase in the high school graduation rate. We now graduate one out of five more students than we did um, back in 2000. Is that due to the teachers' union, or is that due to just general progress as we all become educated more? You know, what, I, what I'm tying that to is the in, improvement in staffing ratios in our schools, both in terms of teachers uh, and support staff, the caring professionals who give kids access to an equitable shot at success in the system. So we've improved the graduation rates by that amount. Um, that's a staggering improvement in a decade and a half, a, a one in five uh, student improvement in in graduation, those kids go on now and they have the opportunity to get into a post-secondary program. They have the opportunity to get into a skilled trades apprenticeship. They go on to contribute to the economy. And you know what? Uh, Just in the spring, there was a Conference Board of Canada report demonstrated that for every dollar you invest in publicly funded education, you return a dollar thirty to the broader economy. And the contrary holds true as well. Every dollar you cut at a public-funded education results in a dollar thirty lost in the broader economy. In other words, education is an investment. It's not a dollar, you know, it's not a cost line item, as uh, this government appears to view it. It is an investment. They say the government says they've added to it this year. Yeah, well, unfortunately, that's, that's spin. What they've done is they've taken $435 million out of another budget line, tax credits for child care, moved it into the education budget, and claimed that that means there's an increase in the education budget. In fact, there is in both real terms um, uh, and, uh, and uh, in, in absolute terms a loss in per-pupil per funding this year as compared to last. So if you're not putting the same kind of resources into each student in our education system, when they claim that that's an increase, that, that's clearly just spin. Harvey Bischoff has been with us, president of OSSTF. Harvey, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is fascinating, uh, and we have talked about uh, the, the the China file and what has been happening, uh, whether it is fentanyl coming in from China, whether it is the Huawei CFO, whether it is U.S. Uh, uh, trade negotiations with China, and of course the detainee, the de- uh, the detainment of, of the two Michaels as well. And on that note, fascinating story from Richard Lee. He was a BC MLA uh, and was actually um, 
uh, just lost his uh, his seat to uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh in the previous uh, election there and got his seat. And when Lee went to China, he was detained and his phone was searched by Chinese authorities. He reported this to caucus at the time, but it uh, didn't go public. However, in 2018, he did report this via letter to the prime minister and the foreign affairs minister, Christia Freeland, at the time. Uh, he did not hear back. Now he has come forward to warn Canadians about China's increasingly, uh, uh, increasingly restrictive approach to Canadian society. To talk more about all of this is Sam Cooper, online journalist, investigative reporter for Global News, one of the great ones, and the current column is BC politician breaks silence, China detain me, is interfering in our democracy. Sam Cooper is with us now. Sam, thanks for the time, much appreciated. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Another fascinating twist to this whole story. Uh, What happened to Lee? What was his story? That's right. Uh, he was a, a B.C. liberal um, member of the Provincial Legislative Assembly from 2001 to 2017. And you're right, the federal liberals did slot him in uh, to the, the Burnaby riding uh, to run against uh, the NDP leader, Mr. Singh, and he lost that contest. But he's, uh, you know, a veteran and a, a, a well-connected politician for the B.C. liberal and the federal liberal party. Well-loved out there. Well, well loved. He's been there for a long time. He was the deputy speaker of the the BC government when he traveled in November 2015 to Shanghai with his wife. Their plan was a a 30th anniversary trip. And uh, that's when he says a a stunning event happened. He was led from the plane and put in a, a booth in customs. He says he was searched he was separated from his wife, who had no idea what was happening to him. And he says they took away his two devices, a personal phone and a B.C. government BlackBerry. He says these China, two Chinese officials came back. They, they demanded access to the government BlackBerry. He says he was uh, fearful that he would be detained uh, for days or longer and separated from his wife, and he provided the password so this, uh, he knew at the time, this is B.C. confidential government information that could be accessed. He didn't know what was happening to them. To him, he, he says they wouldn't specify any allegations, but they searched his phone, canceled his visa, and they said, uh, you need to go directly back to Vancouver at your own cost. Again, they didn't tell him what was wrong, only what you have done is endangering national security. So it's a, a very complex and long story, but uh, to, to end this particular first episode, he comes back to Vancouver. He says his first instinct is to go public. This is Ron. I was detained in China, mm-hmm. and uh, this is a na- they called me a national security threat. He says he held his tongue at the time because relations with China were good, but he reported this information, this troubling information, to his B.C. Liberal Caucus, and uh, n- nothing appears to have been done. How Did they say in any way how he was or why he was a security threat to China? He says that he, all he could gather, he was, he was not giving any specifics, but he did know that he had for a long time been uh, one, of, one of the uh, Canadian uh, uh, politicians that pays attention to the, what's called the June 4th or Tiananmen Square commemoration massacre uh, ceremonies. Hmm. So he would uh, go to the in front of the Chinese consulate in Vancouver, which is a very large and prominent building, and light candles on June 4th. He says 
and I was stunned to find this out. He said that China's consul general in Vancouver directly told him, you should not be doing this, and this is unacceptable for elected Canadian officials to do this. So then he, uh, looking at his detention in China, he believed this was the only explanation. He had been blacklisted for that activity, and this is why he was rejected and detained. Furthermore, he says that uh, his B.C. Liberal colleagues had told him that the Consul General warned them he should not be doing this, and he had to sit through a number of meetings about this. So if we boil this down, his allegations are that China's government is telling Canadian politicians, you cannot speak out on issues that anger China. And if we dig further into that, in my analysis, they're attempting to influence a Canadian political party that, let's not forget, is very pro-trade, does a lot of business with China. we're only starting to get into the concerning elements here. Again, you just brought up a a very valid point, and we certainly remember the whole John McCallum uh, charade and what happened there. So obviously Canada has had, uh, to that point, solid relationships with China. He was bucking that trend? He uh, he says that he he is very pro-trade with China, he uh, is pro-good relations with China. At the same time, he believes in his right to, uh, to speak uh, truth to power on uh, democracy issues. And yet, uh, he says he's, he's basically been ostracized from the Chinese-Canadian community because of his position. And so... Was there anything what, specific that he said or that was documented that this, is what, this, is your, this was your stand on this? What, what was the issue? So he was told, he says you should not be speaking out on the June 4th incident, which is a very, very painful uh, uh, episode for China's Communist Party that they don't want anyone to remember or talk about. He also traveled to Taiwan, which we know is uh, fighting for its independence from Mm -hmm. China, and he says he was told, why are you doing that? Why are you traveling to Taiwan? And uh, so we shouldn't forget that he sat on these explosive allegations for four years until last year he saw Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor detained in China on uh, vague and uh, we all believe, I believe as a journalist, trumped up allegations of national security threats. That's when he sent a letter to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who was CC'd, and Minister Freeland, and he to some level compared his own arbitrary detention with these more serious cases Mm. and said this is a serious issue. So why are we just hearing about this now? Why did we not hear anything initially, and especially after the Prime Minister and Christian Freeland found out about it? Well, the first answer is uh, we haven't... Uh, Mr. Lee did not hear back from the Prime Minister until Global News started to probe this story. And uh, my timeline is I resent Mr. Uh, Lee's allegations to the Chinese consulate in Vancouver this week, A day later, Mr. Lee says he finally somehow got a response from Canada's Prime Minister. We've received your your information. Please be assured we're looking at it. So to me, it looks like something may have happened in the back channels there. Mr. Lee also says that when I started asking questions, he resent his letter to Canada's government. What, what is clear here is nothing has happened for a year. The, the government, uh, in my analysis, is, is facing lots of criticism that they've been, well, they have not uh, taken strong action on the, you know, to, to secure the release of uh, the two Canadians in China and on other issues. 
So there's lots of questions remaining to be asked, and we're still digging into this. I think there's a, a lot more here that I don't know yet, and I'm, I'm looking for answers. Uh, it seems, again, with the remarks that John McCallum had said way back when, and obviously we were uh, doing our best to be graceful to China and, and, and kowtow to them in some respects, I guess, in order to uh, be a part of the golden goose, per se. Uh, but when you, and we certainly know what happened to Mr. McCallum when, when he overstepped his boundary. Uh, that being said, it certainly appears that uh, um, the government, the prime minister, is withholding some sort of information just to keep those waters calm. Would that be due to the two Michaels being uh, in, in detainment or, or fearing others might uh, end up in the same situation? I don't understand why this is kept under wraps. That's a, a complex question, and to break it down, I think it's fair to say that this government is pursuing, has been pursuing, free trade with China. There's some very big files on their plate, one related to an international telecom company. And uh, this government, uh, from my research, really wants to pursue the, the diplomatic uh, channels with China. So there's, of course, an argument that... Uh, uh, certainly, they're working behind the scenes to try to secure releases of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. They don't want to rile China. At the same time, we're hearing, I believe, increasing um, criticism from some people like uh, a former ambassador, David Mulroney, that uh, the path that this government is on is, is a wrong one diplomatically with China and uh, Canada is getting rolled over. So there, uh, there's lots of experts that, that can speak to that. But I think when you boil it down... What is clear is Canada has a lot of money at stake with trade with China. China has a lot of leverage. And I'm hearing more and more in my investigations that people in Canada's Chinese-Canadian community say that the interference whether it's espionage or, or just a political influence, is rising. Yeah. So in other words, keep doing business, but do it from afar? I mean, what sort of message does this send with this information now coming out? I mean, whether you're a politician like Mr. Lee or former politician, or whether you're a businessman like the two Spavers, the, uh, the two Michaels, rather. I guess what this story reveals is there, there are, I believe there are stunning, stunning cases that Canadians have no idea about, for some reason, Mr. Lee in British Columbia has come, come forward uh, four years later. We don't know the full story, but what we do know is that we went to uh, Attorney General David Eby in British Columbia, and he says he is requesting an investigation from Canada's federal government. We don't know uh, what level of information compromise in, in could have, could have mm. occurred here. We also know that it is not... <laughs> This goes without saying, it, it's shocking that a Canadian politician would be detained on what looks like a very slim or, or really wrongful uh, grounds in China. Well, it raises the question, who is safe? If a politician, if a former politician isn't safe, then who is? If a businessman isn't safe, business person, sorry, isn't safe, who is safe over there? I mean, where do you draw the line? It, it's a great question, and uh, at the time of this trip, Mr. Lee wasn't on official business, but he was the deputy speaker of a provincial government in Canada. Uh, you asked the question, who is safe? I can tell you that I, I'm aware of um, police officers in Canada that do not want to go over to China now, I can, uh, and uh, you can see why. Um, really, the evidence is mounting that there can be no trust with this regime, and I think Canadians are starting to, to grasp grasp a hold of that and 
there's some level of confusion why the silence from uh, politicians in Canada on these issues when when uh, the relationship just seems really so untenable at this point. Where do you think this story is going with Richard Lee? Is this going to generate more interest? Does this have legs? Will this uh, make people ask more questions? I can tell you that, uh, that Global News has information. We're continuing to pursue with regards to what did the B.C. Liberal Party do with these allegations? Did they report that a a B.C. government account could have been compromised? Canadian documents could be in a foreign government's hands? Did they go to China's government and complain about this alleged action against one of their members? Uh, There's there's what I would call a powerful politician in British Columbia that we have a name. We're, we're trying to talk to this person. There are many, many questions to be asked and insufficient answers at this point. So not only Lee's safety a concern, but obviously the information that was in that phone. What about his wife? What did she experience through all of this? Uh, following it up, we, uh, Mr. Lee said, obviously, she was very scared. She had no idea what was happening to him. Not to mention this is their 30th anniversary trip. They're traveling back to the homeland of their birth. <laughs> And they're they're rudely denied. He's uh, put in a room with two men watching him at times, two men escorting him to the washroom when when he had to uh, relieve himself. And and they just were told, go back to Vancouver. No, you cannot even stop in Hong Kong. So it's it's a horrible situation for a family to be in, and it must be, I would think, very painful uh, to travel back to the country of your birth and be treated like that. Uh, is on the other hand, is he lucky he did get out? That that's a good point, and he would say that uh, I we we asked, uh, did you consider the the compromise of releasing the, your passcode on your government BlackBerry? He said, I did, but I was fearful that I would be separated from my wife for for days or longer. And uh, he said, I thought that they were mostly looking at my own pro-democracy activities. I didn't think at the time that that the government information could be the key. But uh, so he did that, and um, he's, uh, he's coming forward now. Uh, let me ask you this, Sam. As an investigative reporter, and I know you you have delved into a lot of this, would you feel safe traveling there, knowing what you've done and what you've uncovered? Personally, I I would shy away from from traveling to mainland China myself. Uh, I you know you've asked a, a personal question, and I can say sometimes I do uh, look at contacts I receive, whether it's on LinkedIn. We, we, we hear about efforts from, from people that are offered uh, Mandarin lessons. That's occurred after I've sometimes written very, um, I would say, pointed stories about, about mm. China. So I do take care, and I personally, I would not feel, um, well, I'd think twice, put it that way. I can imagine. Uh, Sam Cooper has been with us, national online journalist for Global News. The recent column, BC Politician Breaks Silence, China Detain Me is Interfering in Our Democracy. This was after the detainment of Richard Lee uh, from British Columbia. Sam, great work. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on. A lot to talk about federal politics as, uh, of course, we get ready for another session. A new government, minority government, and Andrew Scheer, the leader of the official opposition. This week, choosing his front bench to uh, stand shoulder to shoulder with him. And today we meet the deputy house leader for the conservative, John Nader, and he is on the line now. John, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. 
Hey, happy to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. So what is the, uh, what's the duty of the Deputy House Leader? What's your job now? So a couple things. Uh, the first thing is the House function. So we'll be looking after uh, management within the House of Commons, motions, debate, uh, members' business. We'll be uh, focusing on that. And then uh, the second side of it is uh, the um, question period role. So I'll be looking after question period coordination, uh, making sure we have the right members up at the right time to ask the right questions of the government to uh, hold them to account. Wow. Uh, obviously, when we watch all of this on TV, it just looks like it fluidly falls into place. I guess that's not the case all the time. <laughs> well, we do have a great team, but uh, it does take a bit of a coordinating function to make sure we get the right people up at the right time to, uh, to ask the questions of the day. Uh, uh, a lot of times with question periods, something might break just minutes beforehand, so we need to be uh, quick and nimble to uh, get the right questions out to uh, kind of keep the government on their toes. All right. So, uh, obviously, coming off an election, a new government, minority situation, uh, and again, going in, I guess, just for a little quickie before uh, before Christmas starts. What do you? We're seeing a bit of change in mood. Is that is that going to last more than beyond Christmas time? Well, it'll be interesting to see how things go. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's such a short session here before Christmas, basically seven days. So, you know, we'll see what the government uh, decides to bring forward in this short time period. Um, you know, we're, we're hoping the government's going to be open to uh, some negotiations with the opposition to focus on some of the issues that, uh, you know, we think are important, you know. You know, promoting some uh, national unity projects, making sure that uh, uh, you know we're getting Canadians ahead, making sure their you know energy sector, the forestry sector, sectors are going back to work. So we're hoping that uh, the government's going to be open to that, that they have a bit of a, a softer tone and uh, a more cooperative uh, nature than they did when they were in a majority government. But uh, we'll see if that lasts. Uh, you know, once uh, the House of Commons is back next Thursday. So uh, really, what can be accomplished in those seven days is that is, is it really just going to be a lot of social and eggnog uh, up until? Christmas? Christmas time and the kumbaya moments and the love will continue and then it will be after Christmas, after the new year, before uh, we roll up our sleeves and start to see that divisiveness again. What are you yeah. expecting in the next seven days? Well, I, I am a big fan of eggnog, but uh, we'll, we'll try to keep that to, to that to a minimum. But you know, from from the opposition standpoint, you know, we're we're going to be back to work. You know, first thing on on uh, Thursday, you know, with the throne speech, with the debate from that. You know, we'll we'll be doing what we can to you know through question period, uh, through the throne speech debate, to really you know focus on the issues that matter. Now, a lot's going to fall to the government. You know, we, we're hoping that we might see some legislation brought forward early in the session. Uh, there's a lot that can and should be addressed, you know, especially when we look at you know, the energy sector, the forestry sector, uh, some of the ethics and accountability issues that we're, you know, we're going to be pushing from the SNC-Lavalin fallout. You know, there's a lot that we can be pushing, but really at the end of the day, a lot of it's going to fall to the government of what they're going to bring forward uh, from a legislative uh, framework. Um, if, if they're going to take these first seven days and, and just basically do a quick little victory lap, that's not good for anyone. It's not good for Canadians. It's not good for Parliament either. So we're, we're hoping that there's going to be some, some movement on their end, but it, it's going to be a, a question of uh, a, a wait-and-see approach to see what they're really going to bring forward. Um, and we'll get a good sense of that, I think, uh, on Thursday when the throne speech comes out. Uh, I'm a guy in my 50s, mid-50s, and I don't think I've, I remember a point where the country has been so divided. Even during the threat of Quebec separation way back when, uh, at least it was unified on, on two fronts. It seems like it's splintered on many. Uh, talk a little bit about the divisiveness that we're experiencing in, in, uh, in the country right now, and how much of a role do politicians play in all of that as far as leadership? I mean, do they set the tone? 
Oh, absolutely. And I think it really falls to a lot of the politicians in, in all political parties and, and at all levels right now to, to really play a more active role in promoting national unity. And I have to give credit to our Ontario Premier. He's, he's taken a strong, positive tone when it comes to national unity issues. And, you know, I, I think you're unfortunately right about the, uh, the, the, the challenge we're seeing right now with the national unity issues. Um, what we're seeing right now in, in Quebec is the rise of the bloc once again. You know, we were able to go for nearly a decade um, with a, a very uh, muted uh, Quebec. Um, you know, well, many Quebec. thought the Bloc Quebecois was dead, but I mean, I guess you can't say that about any political party, really, can you? It, exactly right, exactly right. You know, almost a decade with, you know, no party status uh, in the House of Commons, and now all of a sudden they're up to uh, 32 seats. And so that's going to be a, a new challenge for uh, Parliament, but especially for the government uh, as well. And then we're seeing, you know, the real concerns uh, from our Western colleagues uh, uh, the challenges in the uh, the oil and gas sector that are really affecting uh, the economy in the West, but affecting real people. And I think that's something that often gets uh, overlooked uh, by this current Liberal government is the impact this is having on families, on workers, on communities um, across uh, across our, our Western provinces. You know, this isn't just uh, you know people often you know portray you know big oil and big gas you know as, as being these monolithic uh, um, empires of of you know rich uh, rich um, tycoons, but these things affect real families, real workers, real people who uh, who are being impacted on a daily basis. Every day that they're out of work, it affects them, it affects their families, uh, it affects the communities where uh, where these people uh, live and, and raise their families. So this is something that, from our, from our opposition standpoint, we're really going to be pushing um, in the coming session of Parliament. And yes, it falls to us to raise those issues, but my goodness, it falls to the government to start addressing some of these issues because... These are real people, and we need to be standing up for them. Are you optimistic with the uh, Prime Minister bringing Christia Freeland into the fray in her new role, obviously meeting with Jason Kenney, the Alberta Premier, earlier on, and it seemed to be quite positive, quite cordial? Yeah, you know, the proof will be in the pudding. So um, I, I'm, I'm, all, you know, I'm an eternal optimist. I'm a conservative, so you know, we're, 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 uh, we have to be optimistic in a lot of these things. And so I'm hopeful and optimistic that we will see the government take real action. Um, you know, putting in Minister, Minister Freeland in that position, you know, was, a, was an interesting choice. You know, she does have Alberta, uh, Albertan roots, uh, having been born and raised there. Uh, now it's going to be whether she can take action. So I think uh, our, our provincial colleagues in both uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan have uh, raised important issues. They presented good proposals. And now hopefully Minister Freeland is able to take those back and, and, and sell them not only uh, to, you know, to her bureaucrats, but to uh, the Liberal cabinet as a whole. Uh, we're, we're, we've seen a cabinet that hasn't been particularly open to some of the issues that are being raised. So her job's not only to uh, propose policy, but to, to be a chief salesperson to sell them to her colleagues. Because if, if we're not going to see real action on this soon, um, we're going to continue to lose investment uh, to international competitors, and that's not good for anyone, uh, not the least of which is our, 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 our um, friends and colleagues uh, across the country in, in Western provinces and the, the families who are being uh, impacted there. All right, let's talk about your party and, um, and your leader uh, specifically. Uh, right after the election, many jumped on, uh, on Andrew Scheer saying he was the reason that the election was lost, not progressive enough. Uh, then uh, later on, just this past week, we're hearing from the opposite side saying, well, he's not representing them. Many have said that uh, when the Conservatives are in this position, they start eating uh, each other. What's the future of this party? How divided is this party right now? 
Yeah, you know, after any election, there's always going to be that that sense of disappointment. Uh, you know, I think Andrew himself has said, you know, he was disappointed. He, you know, no one goes in an election to win second place. There's no silver medal medal in politics. You know, we're in this to, you know, represent the people, to make changes, and we want to be in government to be able to do that. So I think there was a real sense of disappointment uh, after the election. But I can tell you from uh, from our party standpoint and from our caucus standpoint, you know, we're we're united and we're focused on holding the government to account. You know, there are unfortunately going to be some people out there who might be, you know, agitating for for different reasons. But you know, going forward, I think there's a lot we can do to hold this government account and to prepare. You know, we're going to be having a uh, national policy convention uh, coming up in April. So I would hope that a lot of the people who might be agitating right now on different levels. Do they focus on some of the policies that uh, we should be focusing on, that we should be building, that we should be creating, and bringing them forward at our policy convention in April in Toronto? That's the real, uh, real work that needs to be done. Uh, Canadians have elected 121 of us as members of Parliament, and I think our focus needs to be on supporting uh, the people we've been uh, tasked with uh, representing, holding the Liberal government to account, and then making changes going forward so that when the next uh, election comes around, and it could be... You know, it could be a year from now, it could be three years from now, but whenever that happens, we're ready, and the Canadians can see us as a government in waiting. So yes, we're the opposition, and we're going to play that role, but we also have to be seen as a government in waiting. So the way we do that is by working hard and developing policies and priorities and plans for, so that when the time comes, that we have something to present to Canadians that they can uh, endorse and reward us with uh, with uh, electing us to government. We're speaking with John Nader, Deputy House Leader for the Conservatives. Uh, John, uh, as you mentioned, there's a, uh, a policy and I guess leadership review come April for the Conservatives. Why is this? Why is there chatter of this now regarding leadership? Uh, should this not wait till then, or is it a scenario where, well, there was the feeling in the party that you know, well, if this isn't going to work, we're we're losing valuable time. And we want we want to move forward quickly. No, I, I think you know th- you made the point. You know, absolutely. I think this is something that we will deal with at our national convention in April, and that's uh, you know that's the, the opportunity for our grassroots members. So Canadians and all you know conservative supporters and all 338 ridings across the country, you know, it's, it's their decision to make. And I think too often certain, certain people get hung up on, on you know, questions of leadership. And it, it's, a, it's a fun parlor game. It's a fun uh, opportunity to speculate and to, you know, to uh, sow divisions and, and, and to go from that angle. But we, we, we really have to remember, you know, who it is that we're here to serve. And we're here to serve the people. And the party has always been focused on a grassroots uh, process since their original founding in 2004. So they're the ones who are going to make the decision. And you know, I can tell you, you know, talking to uh, local grassroots supporters, not only in my riding but in neighboring ridings and ridings across the country, you know, there, yes, there's a sense of disappointment that we lost the election. You know, we had a lot of things going for us, but there are also positive signs. You know, we won, you know, 22 more seats than we did in in 2015. We increased our popular vote. We won the popular vote. Uh, we didn't quite get where we needed to go, and so there is a, a period for reflection. But I think there's a lot of, uh, of faith among our party members that uh, we do have a strong team. We have a we have a leader who's committed to uh, reviewing what uh, what might have been able to have been better in the last election, review what went wrong, and, and make those changes going forward. He's already made some changes in his in his office to uh, to address you know uh, 
put the people in place for a strong team going forward. And I think that you know our members will will see that, and uh, you know we'll reward him with a strong endorsement and and give us the opportunity to move forward and hold the government to account and be ready for the next election. Where do you think, and this is a pretty broad question, John, uh, we're speaking with John Nader, who's Deputy House Leader Conservatives. What, Where do you think conservatism is going here? Because, you know, some are saying, uh, I, I remember way back when, when Ronna Ambrose was the interim leader, we're going to look for a kinder, gentler uh, conservative party uh, here in Ontario. They've talked about the old Bill Davis uh, days and such. And, you know, many have said that uh, progressive sort of a, you know, a, a contradictory word, but even a more modern version of the party. It seems whether it's provincial or it's federal, uh, the liberals uh, have continually moved to the left to, to kind of uh, cut the NDP off at the pass. Uh, and it seems in some ways, provincially and federally, some may point to a further uh, push to the right for the Conservatives. Does anybody realize there's a gaping hole in the center here? Well, I, I think that's a great point. I mean, you know, the Liberal Party has moved further and further left, and I hear that from uh, different groups, different uh, community groups, but also different business groups. Those who have traditionally, you know, kind of been in been in the, the center right, who have, you know, been able to see some of the benefits of a, of a Liberal Party that was, you know, towards the center, they're not seeing that anymore. They've seen the Liberal Party go so far to the left that they're really not addressing so many of those issues that so many of the, you know, of, uh, of those who live in Canada see themselves in that center uh, spectrum, whether it's, you know, slightly to the right, slightly to the left. You know, I think for, for us as a party, you know, we need to be looking at uh, the real tangible, you know, issues that Canadians are experiencing, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, jobs, the economy, whether it's their pocketbook issues. And, you know, those are issues that tend to be um, focused on a center-right um, position on the spectrum. So, you know, we need to be looking at where that is. We need to be uh, making sure that our policies, you know, fit into that. You know, you'd mentioned the, the, the idea of a modern conservative party, and I think that's really where we're, we're heading. And it's a modern conservative party where we look at the ideas that are best suited for Canadians, uh, regardless of where they may be seen on a traditional uh, left-right political spectrum. Um, that, that spectrum is uh, as important as, as a concept, but I think most Canadians may not even see themselves on that spectrum. You know, it's not until they all of a sudden start looking at the issues they realize that, yes, the Conservative Party reflects my values, ref- reflects my concerns. So we need to be making sure that wherever we, uh, you know, we land on some of the policies we have going forward, that we are we are selling those policies and making sure that we you know we are pre- prevent presenting policies where Canadians can see themselves in, that they can see themselves that the Conservative Party is the party that re- that reflects their views and that represents them. Uh, in, in Ottawa and across the country. Whether one believes it or not or, or has their own personal religious beliefs, does a modern conservative leader march in a pride parade? You know, and, and that's a real personal uh, you know, choice that so many different politicians make. You know, in, in my uh, largely rural riding, I, I have two uh, pride events uh, in my riding. I made the decision that I would attend both, and uh, they were great events. I was warmly welcomed, and I very much in- enjoyed them. Um, but I think kind of the more important issue is what we can do um, as a party and hopefully as a future government uh, to support those in the LGBTQ plus uh, community. What policies uh, should we be looking at? And often, you know, it's forgotten that some of the work we did when uh, you know we were in government prior to 2015 was a strong support of those in the LGBTQ plus uh, community, particularly internationally. 
And so some of the things we undertook with uh, bringing and welcoming uh, LGBTQ plus uh, refugees who were being persecuted internationally uh, because of who they were, because of uh, who who they were and who, who they loved. And so, you know, that's something that we should be very proud of. And I think, you know, while, while some may choose to march in pride parades, some may not, I think more important is that we have policies that are strongly in support of the LGBT, LGBTQ plus community, that uh, they can be... Um, welcomed within our party and that we will support them um, and support the community with policies that address their concerns. John Nader has been with us, Deputy House Leader, Conservatives. John, good luck when you get back to it next month. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.